Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. Welcome to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist, where we think outside the box. And today's program, we're going to talk about something that people don't quite understand, and it's about the fall of communism. The fall of communism was not a straightforward event. And we're going to have our special guest on the show, Robert Bukhar, documentary film producer, a former citizen of communist Czechoslovakia, who is specifically looking at the fall of communism. Now, what we're going to talk about on today's show is Anatoly Galitsyn, a KGB defector. He came over in December of 1961, and Galitsyn had been in the KGB, and he knew from his own background that the KGB was preparing in the late 1950s for a gigantic deception of the West, planning to have fake splits between communist countries, a controlled collapse of communism into democracies. He called it the 40-year long-range strategy that was officially adopted by the Soviet bloc in 1960. He wrote a book about this in 1984, before Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union. And in this book, he has a chapter called The Final Phase. In that chapter, he goes through all the things that he believed that they were working on back when he was in the KGB. He stated in his book that the Berlin Wall was probably going to come down, that uh, the KGB was going to be reformed, that the Communist Party was going to give up power in the Soviet Union, that the Warsaw Pact alliance was going to break apart. He made about uh, 140-something-odd predictions in his 1984 book about the Eastern Bloc. By 1994, about 94% of these predictions had come true. This is an astonishing thing. Now, Galitzin tried to tell the Kennedy White House, he tried to tell the higher leaders of the CIA about his insights into long-range Soviet strategy, but people didn't want to hear it. Now, what could be more important intelligence? Some technical detail of aircraft the enemy's building or which particular agent's a double agent? or the grand strategic conception of your enemy. What is more important? Well, obviously, the grand strategic conception of your enemy, what your enemy is planning in the long run to do against you, what kind of deceptions he's planning, whether or not he's setting up phony dissident organizations, controlled democratic movements within the Soviet bloc. All of these things Galitzin wrote about, but people didn't want to hear it. Now, many of you hearing this for the first time on this radio show are going to want to know, well, how can this be possible? I mean, how could the CIA be fooled? I mean, we haven't heard this on the the 6 o'clock news. It, it, It wasn't told to us by the major networks or by the major newspapers. No. There is in the West a decision on a cultural level, on a government level, to be to be dumb to not accept this testimony, to not accept the truth that a man came from the KGB decades ago, predicted that the Soviet Union would fake its own collapse, 
And, and even though evidence continues to stream out of Eastern Europe that the collapse of communism was orchestrated by the KGB, controlled by the KGB for purposes of Moscow's long-range strategy, we can't get anybody here to print it, to talk about it, to accept it, to say anything other than the people who claim it are nuts, to say that Galitzin is a madman or Jeff Nyquist, who's been writing about this for 10 years, is a little bit off his nut. No, they want to deny it. And I want to show to the listeners tonight with my guest, Robert Bukhari, he's been working on a documentary film to prove these things. He's interviewed CIA people, and we're going to hear their words describing why the truth has not been accepted in the United States and why it's been blocked at every turn, and you, the public, don't know about it. We'll be back with Robert Bukhar, my guest, after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. I'm Jeff Nyquist, back with Outside the Box, and I've got my special guest with me, Robert Bukhar. He's a documentary film producer working on a film exposing the deception and the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me again. Oh, yeah. It's very, very important work you've been doing. It's really important work. And uh, we have a we have a couple excerpts. We're going to talk about Anatoly Galitsyn. And one of the things that your work shows is that the KGB was behind the planning and organizing of the collapse of communism in Czechoslovakia and also, from what I know, from the rest of Eastern Europe. And you, you got to talk to a lot of people about this. Yeah, I discussed Galitsyn with pretty much everybody, with, with Pete Bagley, with Jay Epstein, actually even with Bukowski and all those other guys. And it's not just, you know, Goritzin with the Shana and a bunch of other, you know, defectors the, the who pretty much were saying the same thing a long time ago, but nobody paid attention. Yeah, nobody paid attention. Anatoly Galitsyn wrote a book in 1984 called New Lies for Old, in which he predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, and he predicted it would be organized and orchestrated by the KGB as a deception of the West, and that the KGB, through its uh, secret creatures and secret networks, would remain in control of those different countries in Eastern Europe. The problem was that nobody in the West was interesting interested in these type of fairies, you know. The CIA wasn't interested in politics. They were interested in sort of material material information which can be verified and put in numbers. Politicians didn't want to hear this type of stuff, which Golitsyn mm-hmm. was saying. Yeah, it's difficult for a politician to turn that into something that he can use. And, of course, uh, uh, it, you had asked before the important question about what the CIA made of all this and how it managed to get so distorted in the public mind so that the public accepts uh, that the changes in Eastern Europe were genuine or rather uh, went went below skin deep, so to speak. Um, we have a couple excerpts. Uh, we're going to listen to uh, Pete Bagley talking about Galitzin. And Bagley is a former CIA uh Operative, and uh, here's Bagley, Pete Bagley, on Galitzin. Galitzin was certainly telling the truth, as he knew it. And there comes another story. Because Galitzin had a lot of information about penetrations of Western governments, when that information was passed to the Western governments, they became outraged and unhappy because nobody wants, no government wants to discover penetrations in its midst. It's not in the interest of a government, it's not in the interest of the people in power to find out that they have been 
fooled, that they've been manipulated, and therefore they will take every piece of information they can to reject this. It's a, uh, again, a human tendency because it's undesirable, but it's a bureaucratic tendency because it's also politically poisonous because a service which finds, through good counterintelligence work, finds a mole in its midst and gets rid of it by cleaning out its own stable, it becomes a figure of fun, ridicule, and distrust. That was Pete Bagley, former CIA uh, leader, uh, a guy we've had on uh, my program before as a guest. And, uh, Robert, it's very interesting. He's describing why the CIA and why the politicians that stand above the CIA would not want to listen to Galitzin, a KGB defector, who is saying, look, you're penetrated. Look, they're going to deceive you. They're going to try these things. And immediately it's bad news, and they don't want to hear this bad news. Yeah, that was a combination, I guess, two things. First, he really brought some information which was absolutely correct, and it embarrassed the French, it embarrassed Britons. So I guess everybody was, oh, gosh, you know, he knows a lot, and it's real, you know. That was one thing. But then that other part of ideological part, which he was talking about Politburo and about KGB misinformation campaign, which is supposed to influence the foreign policy of the United States and the Western world in general, that was something what nobody wanted to hear. Yeah, no, and and it's it's very interesting. You'd think we were all grown-ups, you know, and that somebody tells us the truth, and it's very important uh, for the grown-ups to, uh, to do that. And now we have um, another segment uh, on Galitzin, Edward J. Epstein, who uh, wrote a book uh, called Deception, which uh, features Galitzin as a, uh, as a major player in the book. So here's Edward J. Epstein, uh, an American political scientist and journalist. Initially, when, the, when Galitzin defected, he was believed. He was believed um, by Jim Angleton to begin with. Uh, his, he gave an, a large number of uh, Soviet penetrations away, and these Soviet penetrations proved to be accurate. And so, uh, you know, Galitzin was accepted. But as he kept expanding his story, the pragmatic side of the CIA less interested in ideas and producing reports and producing information, uh, began to disbelieve him and believe he was, I guess you would say for no better explanation, uh, crazy or a mythomaniac, and they stopped believing him. Angleton and parts of British intelligence, MI6, uh, especially Stephen Mowbray and British intelligence, and uh, they did believe him, and they continued to use his information. So, uh, you know, when Angleton was kicked out of the CIA in 1974 or 75, then Galitzin was terminated as far as a useful agent. Hmm. It's it's interesting what Epstein says is is that in in this case. A section within the CIA didn't want to hear this, uh, perhaps because it contradicted their favorite ideas. I'm I'm not sure. What 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 do you think about this, uh, Robert? You had a more in-depth discussion with Epstein. Yeah, well, you know, this is that weird thing that actually CIA was always some sort of like covering up everything bad about Soviet Union. 
they were covering up Soviet's involvement in terrorism, you know, they were not interested in Shaina when he came in and was telling the same thing, you know, what mm-hmm. Gorizny was saying before. And there were a bunch of other defectors like, I don't know, Vladimir Sakharov or Stanislav Levchenko. They all testified in front of the Congress, you know, about these things, but nobody wanted to hear it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, you know, who knows what, what the reason for that is, but that's, that's a sort of weird pattern. And again, like uh, Bill Gates called that in my interview, anti-anti-communist uh, uh, attitude uh, in CIA, which was terrible. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like, imagine if you risk your life to defect to the West, and you have this very important information for the West, and you can't get people to believe you. Uh, that has got to shut you up pretty fast because you realize your meal ticket is they have to accept you, or if they reject you, you're going to end up back in a communist bloc country in a prison and with a bullet in the back of the head. So you have to eventually start giving them what they want, or you're going to be in very serious trouble. Yeah, but it looks like CIA never took defectors too much seriously because they believe they are like sort of disillusioned people who sort of have an opinion, but... You know, they were not interesting political opinions, you know. They yeah. were interesting in numbers. And, of course, if you if these defectors who have strategic knowledge, I mean, grand strategy is really politics. Yeah, I guess CIA couldn't even figure out what these people were talking about. They couldn't comprehend it. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I remember Christopher Story wrote in his newsletter several years ago, he managed to be able to interview a Viktor Suvorov, whose real name is Vladimir Rezin. He was a GRU defector from, you know, almost 30 years ago. And uh, he asked him, he said, do you think the changes in Eastern Europe are genuine? You know, the fall of communism? And he said, oh, no, I don't think it's genuine. And he said, so it's a deception, yes? And he said, well, you work with the British military because he defected to Britain, and you work with British intelligence, don't they understand this? And he said, oh, no, they don't understand it. And he said, well, why don't they understand it? And his answer, his simple answer was, because they're stupid, (laughs) was his simple answer, which was, to a lot of people, baffling, because they say, these people, you know, how can we say that these people are stupid? They're so smart. They've all gone to school. They've been educated. But somehow, there's some kind of blinder. And, of course, Bagley explains the bureaucratic motivation is that, that this is bad news to the political bosses and to the managers of the organization, because they don't know how to deal with this kind of information. They don't want to deal with it. So it's better to say, like you say, it's just their political opinion of these defectors who happen to, you know, be disgruntled individuals who have some odd, odd notions. Yeah, we were discussing with Vladimir Bukowski, like, why every Western, you know, politician want to be friends with Putin, you know? Why that, you know? <laughs> why, why be together, you know, with Putin in the war on terrorism if everybody knows that Soviet Union was the inventor of using global terrorism. So that's, those are real answer, questions which probably will never be answered. Yeah. And of course, if people have blinders, if, if people have blinders on and they can't see the forest for the trees, then they're, they're like blind kittens. They can easily be manipulated. They're the perfect victim, uh, for a Soviet machinations or Russian or KGB machinations. And that seems to be the situation. It seems to be that the, these Western governments are, are actually helpless. As frightening as it sounds, it seems on some level they are helpless and they can't deal with this. Would that would that be right, or how would you characterize it? Yeah, well, 
I guess that's like who knows what the big picture is, which nobody can figure out, you know. So what are those forces behind, you know, leading to this decision? Is it just plain be stupid or is it something, you know, more complicated, which includes, you know, international money, you know, finance uh, and, and pretty much, you know, that whole movement to new world order and global management of the, of the world. Mm-hmm. What do we know? What do we know? Well, I remember what Napoleon once said about conspiracy. He said, never attribute to conspiracy something that can be better attributed to stupidity. And that is sort of the position I take. I I know that the global managers, they want to have this new world order. They want to have a global village where everybody's working together uh, uh, in a, a sort of a, uh, a a unified financial system. But, uh, but anyway... Uh, I think it's like a utopian dream. They're not going to get it. Or Robert, I want to thank you for being with us on the program. Um, do you have any final thoughts? I'm I'm really sorry that I couldn't get to actually to Golitsyn for for this project because I tried to contact him so 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 hard, you know, for a couple of years and he never responded to me. I think that if I could actually bring him on this project, it would be something. Yeah, that that would be big. Well, good luck. I I hope it can happen for you, Robert. Thanks for being on the show, and uh, we're, we'll hopefully we'll have you on in a couple weeks again. Thank you. Good luck. I'm Jeff Nyquist. We'll be back after these messages. Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. All right, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box. We're thinking outside the box. And uh, with me is my friend, uh, George, from the former Soviet Republic of Ukraine. George, you you wanted to say something, I think, about the difference, you know, how totalitarianism emerges and the difference between a pure democratic system and a, and a, a republic with mixed institutions. Uh, yes, I found that uh, most of the people don't really understand the difference between the republic and the democracy. And uh, the difference lies in the fact that republic should have a, a system of checks and balances, meaning if Let's say, uh, let's remember what happened in Germany when Hitler came to power. The majority voted for him, even though they knew that he will lead the country into the totalitarian state. But there were no uh, limits, no system of uh, keeping that from happening, as we have in the American Constitution, a certain system of checks and balances. So it is very important to understand that uh, even when say, manipulated by someone, majority of voters decide to vote for a totalitarian state to be imposed, it's not going to happen. Yeah. It shouldn't happen in a proper republic. There should be checks and balances for that. Yeah. Of course, what what happened in Nazi Germany, it's interesting, the Nazi party was the largest political party, which was getting the most votes of any political party. And, and actually what happened was Hitler was appointed chancellor by President von Hindenburg. And it was... Um, this mechanism that allowed the Nazis to get into power, but but you're right, even though it wasn't by voting that Hitler actually came to power, it was through the voting that made the Nazi party the biggest party in the Reichstag. And, of course, 
if you have a system in which people go with the majority or the largest political party and they just they just do it as a way to accommodate uh, a large number of voters, it can be very dangerous if those voters themselves are in favor of a, of a dangerous uh, totalitarian program. That, that is true. And it kind of reminds me of, of the electoral situation that we have right now in the United States when we have uh, uh, two candidates and one of them... Uh, well, um, it, he's not actually saying that his goal is to impose a totalitarian regime, but right. there are there are yeah there are number of indicators that may lead to this conclusion. Yeah, well, Barack Obama definitely seems to be uh, closer to socialism than anybody we've had run for president in the history of the country. That is true. And and what people got to understand about socialism is socialism is the negation of freedom. Because the ultimate freedom, aside from the freedom to speak, is the freedom to buy and sell. And socialism wants to take that particular freedom away. And in order to do that, they have to create a police, a massive police system and bureaucracy. Because buying and selling economic activity is the most basic human activity. And to regulate and control that requires the most massive dictatorship imaginable. Absolutely. That is absolutely true. Because before you can open your mouth and talk on the radio or somewhere, you have to, you have to eat something, you have to have a shelter, you have to put some clothes on, and all that is uh, kind of organized within the, uh, the um, strata that is called economy. Mm-hmm. So we should actually be much more attentive to what is going to happen to our economy, as, uh, as Marxists uh, call it, the basis uh, of the society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. If if we have a, a political group that controls the economy, we're giving them sort of the ultimate power over everything, over speech, over uh, political choices, over social choices of all kinds. Absolutely, yes, because everybody is born with, with, the, with the freedom of speech given by, by God, by the, our Creator, but you have to exercise your freedom of speech. You can exercise it talking to your wife or to your friends, but this is one thing. Another thing, if you can exercise it on the mass level, meaning if you can have an access to the mass media, internet, TVs, uh, I mean, anything like that. And if the economy is uh, controlled by the government, then it's much harder for a private citizen to exercise his right of free speech. Yeah, because basically the media will be controlled by the economic forces, and the economic forces are controlled by the political forces of the dictatorship that's controlling the economy. Yes. Yeah. And we have to watch for that. This is where our Republican checks and balances should actually play the crucial role. Yeah. Well, George, I want to thank you for being with us on the show. And i got to move on, but, uh, but we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you, Jeff. Always a pleasure to talk to you. George, i got to run. we got a break. We'll be back after these messages with the Jeff Nyquist program Outside the Box. To the ones that wear the uniforms To the ones that lost their lives To a nation that's been torn God hears your painful cries I will stand with you, my friend For justice will amend America Coming up in our next segment, my thoughts about Russia's invasion of Georgia and the ensuing crisis. The 
You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. Well, it's been a few days since Russia invaded Georgia now. And in perspective, we can look at this event with real good hindsight. We can see the Russian lies. We can see the practice of deception at work. We can see that Anatoly Galitsyn's prediction that Russia was going to build up in the future and come back and be strong again as part of their long-range strategy that they've been using perestroika and glasnost and Yeltsin's democracy and Putin as a smokescreen to reinvigorate their regime to then come back and put the Soviet Union together again and have one clenched fist united with China and other rogue states against the West. And this invasion of Georgia, by the way, was done for the sake of a regime change. It was the decision by the Kremlin. They could not stand uh, former Soviet Republic of Georgia to become a democracy to be led by a pro-American president, President Mikhail Sekashvili. They could not allow it to be allied with the United States, to enter into NATO. So they massed five divisions, something called uh, 58th Army, the 76th Airborne, and the 98th Airborne with a Spetsnaz regiment to invade Georgia and do a blitzkrieg on it on the pretext that Georgia was committing genocide which is quite laughable, against the Ossetian minority in southern Ossetia. The Russians had been depriving Georgia of its sovereignty, intervening in Georgia's internal affairs, supporting these Ossetian rebels as well as Abkhazian rebels along the Black Sea coast. And, of course, this is completely, by international standards, illegal for Russia to do this, but Russia's been doing it. And then they used the fact that provocations from these Moscow-supported Ossetian rebels, provocations against the Georgian military, against Georgian villages with artillery and with snipers. These provocations led the Georgian military to respond. And according to President Saakashvili of Georgia, they knew the Russian tanks were rolling against Georgia, and so they had to move their forces forward into Ossetia to knock out a bridge to delay the advance of the Russian forces. So the way that this story has even played in the mainstream press has been distorted. But the, the plain fact of it is, just as the, the Swedish government and the Danish government and the Polish and the Baltic states governments plainly said it is naked Russian aggression, period. And all the lies and excuses that Russia gives for the invasion are just that, lies and excuses. And the idea that this invasion was caused by some event that happened the day before or the night before on the part of the Georgians is rubbish because the Russians positioned their forces to attack Georgia weeks before the attack took place. And in fact, three weeks, more than three weeks before the invasion of Georgia, the president of Russia called all of Russia's ambassadors from all the countries in the world, called them back to Moscow to the Kremlin for a meeting at which he gave a speech, a most curious speech. In this Medvedev speech, he basically talked about, well, we got this problem with the mistreatment of Russian nationals in these different countries, and of course we have to protect them. But what he goes on to say in the speech is the reason that this is going to be made an issue of is because Russia wants to remake the security architecture of Europe. Now don't let those words fool you. That's code language for they want to get rid of NATO. And they want the European Union to combine in a strategic partnership with Russia and they want the United States out of Europe. And that that's what this 
Georgian invasion is about. It is an effort to frighten the countries in Western Europe and to humiliate the United States in a confrontation in such a way that these countries will then make a separate deal with Moscow and that Moscow will be able to dominate Europe. That's part of what they tried to do. They were trying blatant intimidation. And they were using Georgia as an example. If they could blitz through Georgia and depose Saakashvili, then there would be no faith that Ukraine could survive, that Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania could survive. And as a test case, Georgia is a country not yet in NATO, but promised to become a NATO member, an ally of the United States. This country, Georgia, their soldiers have been fighting side by side with American soldiers in Iraq in the same cause. So if America allowed Georgia to fall, if America and its president was too afraid to confront Moscow, too afraid to confront that fierce little man, Vladimir Putin, then it would be all over for NATO. It would be all over for America's position in Europe. And the Russians could put the USSR back together again and dominate Europe as they never had before and create a new global international order which is what Russian President Medvedev told his ambassadors on July 15th. And I have a few quotes. He says, We should take stock of the legacy provided by the recent past, including the Helsinki Accords and the treaties between the Soviet Union and NATO. We must decide whether they are adequate to the new conditions of life or come up with something fundamentally new for the construction of a modern European architecture that would be designed for 21st century realities. I get this part. The Russian president says, I'm absolutely convinced that this requires new approaches. That is why we propose to conclude a new treaty on European security and to start this process at a European-wide summit. And this was given by the Russian president on July 15th as the reason for bringing up the persecution of ethnic Russians or Russian-speaking people in countries like Georgia, this was given as the reason for the violence, for the invasion of Georgia. They, the Russians want to frighten people into a summit so that they can create a new security structure for Europe that will replace NATO. Pay careful attention now, because Russia, even though its troops have been pulled back, is engaging in a diplomatic offensive. And it's very important to understand that the Russians not only use military force at certain times, but they use diplomacy, they use propaganda, they use criminal organizations, mafias, drug trafficking. They use infiltration, penetration, what's called active measures, disinformation. And one of the things that I noted about this Georgian invasion is how many Americans, a shocking number of Americans, were willing to parrot Moscow's line, they were willing to say that somehow America was at fault, that George Bush was somehow at fault for what was happening in Georgia. No, my friends, the United States was not committing aggression against Russia. Georgia is an independent country, a country, a free country. They want to live their own lives. They do not want Russian tanks rolling through their streets. They don't want the KGB coming back to spy on them and oppress them and send their most patriotic citizens to concentration camps or prison. They don't want that. They want their freedom. What we really need to do is put pressure on Russia so that this 
current regime in Russia collapses and that Russia can take a genuine road to democracy like Georgia has done, like Poland has begun to do, like Ukraine has begun to do, we need to have that in Russia because if we don't, if Russia is able to reestablish itself in the way that the Kremlin dreams, then Russia will follow the plan that Anatoly Galitsyn, who we've been talking about on this program, said the plan is to deceive the West about the changes in Russia and to come back stronger using Western technology against it. Anyway, pay careful attention to the news. You know, uh, play a few less video games. Don't listen to as much pop music. Don't watch as many movies. Watch some news. Read some newspapers. Subscribe to something good. And follow events. See what's happening. See what the Russians are doing. And if you hear about a security summit being held in Europe... Be very careful. Write your congressman. Say, we don't want this summit to destroy NATO. We don't want this summit to destroy the genuine defense of freedom in the Western world. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. With me on the line is Keith Rice, a North Coast philosopher, North Coast, California. Keith, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. Yeah, have you been seeing this business about uh, Obama and the, the calling a lot of the white voters racist because they don't want to vote for him? Well, he's a, he implies it. He doesn't come out and directly say it like so much of his uh, implications. He lets his supporters invent what they like from his uh, particular spin. But, uh, you know, I, I really think that there's a lot of racism in this campaign that the media is ignoring, that people just aren't uh, dealing with. And that's... Uh, all of the minority voters, blacks, Mexicans, what have you, that are going to be voting for Obama simply because he's black, regardless of, of his stand on the issues. And uh, whatever racism there is on the side of whites, I have, I'm pretty certain that the, 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 the number of minority voters that are voting for Obama because he's black far overwhelms the number of people who might be voting against him because he is. You know, there's this issue that Ben Stein uh, raised that a lot of white people are, in fact, voting for Obama out of white guilt. Mm, that's a form of racism, too, I think. Yeah, it I is. Think because we have nothing to feel guilty of unless we think they're beneath us. Well, I feel guilty unless you actually do feel that they're beneath you. And I, I think there's a lot of that coming from the left. Oh, now that's psychologically very interesting. Uh, I don't, I don't uh, feel prejudiced, so I don't, I, I think, what's wrong with just voting for a person if you think he's the best person for the job, that that should be the qualification, not the color of his skin? The important discussion of where we're going to find the most qualified people to lead us seems to be left, uh, left on the wayside somewhere. I mean, it does seem a, like a very empty proposition to say uh, we need to prove that we're not a racist country, so we need to vote a black person. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter what he really stands for or what he's really about or what his character is. It just matters that his skin it happens to be black. Well, this really is, I think, the, the liberal uh, mindset that non-liberals are morally inferior and, and probably racist to boot in general. Yeah. When in fact, not being racist is a very minor moral achievement that we pretty much conquered decades ago in this country, for the most part. Yeah, I don't, I don't meet a lot of racists on a day-to-day -day basis in America. I, I, you know, I hear people talk about how this is a racist country, especially hear it from foreigners, uh, who are still reading about what was going on with Jim Crow back in the 1950s in the South. Mm -hmm. 
but I haven't seen racism. And in fact, it's completely illegal. It's considered wrong and unethical in the businesses I've been, I've worked for and that I've seen in the school sure. systems and the government bureaucracies. It's plain regarded as wrong. I think in people. Fact, we've institutionalized reverse racism, which is, it's not really reverse racism. It's, it's another form of racism. Right. Yeah. Reverse racism would be just racism the other way, going the other way. Yeah. yeah I mean, affirmative action is, is, a, is a fairly racist policy. Yes. And uh, sex is to boot. So, so the, the charges of, of racism in general are, uh, you know, they're specious at best. Yeah, it is very disturbing, and, and it's disturbing that, uh, well, he consciously, as a presidential candidate, exploits it. And, of course, he's a guy on the far left. We're going to have on the show, um, I'm hoping to get uh, Herbert Rammerstein, and uh, Rammerstein has found that uh, uh, one of Obama's mentors that he mentions, a guy named Frank, in, in, in Obama's first book, was a Communist Party member. Mm, that's not surprising at all. Uh, Obama's uh, policies have been described socialist by a number of commentators that I've looked at. Yeah, if, if people can understand what socialism means, where we get into a kind of petty tyranny, uh, you know, we were talking on the program earlier about this, is, is that if the government can control uh, the economy, that means the policing over all of our economic actions which is an enormous policing. It's a police state. It's it's incredible power in the hands of the government. And, and of course, the government is just people, and they're going to abuse that power if they get a chance. No doubt. It seems that the, the left has been advancing what I call the politics of envy. Their politics is largely about envy, taking what other people have, particularly the wealthy, and resenting their achievements, using the gun of the political machinery to extort that wealth for their own benefit uh, as demagogues. Talking about something happening in your local area, you're living in Arcata, California. For those listeners that don't know, Arcata, California is the uh, uh, city in America that's controlled by the Green Party. The Greens are, they're watermelons, they're green on the outside, but they're red on the inside, or as some might say, pink and seedy on the inside. (laughs) But um, A lot of the locals like to think of it as Berkeley North. Berkeley North, yeah, it's pretty nasty. The North Coast, uh, we have this city, this peculiar city. Well, this is something that these uh, little mini totalitarians are trying to do here in the North Coast. It's unbelievable. This is from the North Coast Journal. Last week, the Arcata City Council voted 4-1 to one to disallow Arcata residents from attending the world-famous Lipizzaner Stallions extravaganza at the Redwood Acres Fairgrounds in Eureka. <laughs> the anti-Lipizzaner campaign sprang up suddenly when a council member's grandkid was reading aloud from a white stallion website one evening at home, and she blurted out the catchy slogan, Horse of Battle, Horse of Ballet. That was all it took. No horse of battle was going to flay its death hooves at our citizens, no matter how pretty. They are putting the Arcata Police Department on the borders leading from Arcata into Eureka on the two days of the event to check people's wallets for Lipizzaner tickets. But, you know, these are these are really war horses. The guys that that ride them are wearing 19th century military uniforms. The horses dance to classical music, I understand. They're very special horses, but apparently because they're war horses... These people are anti-war, and they're trying to stop sure. people from going to this event. They won't be able to take the tickets away or prevent the people from going to yeah, the show. Yeah. They can't take the tickets away, but they are authorized to pass out anti-war pamphlets and to, to make them try to sign a, a an anti-war... Um, petition, yeah. Yeah, an anti-war petition. Yeah, it, it's opposed. You know, after Berkeley passed their laws about, uh, you know, the military recruiting within its bounds, Arcata had to follow suit to prove just how 
wonderful enlightened they are, controlling the actions of the population in such a manner. They, they can't be serious. Yet, what is it, four of them voted for it? Yeah, four to one to disallow Arcata residents from attending the event. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's so totalitarian that they're going to actually interfere with an entertainment program which does not contain any sex or violence. But what do you think is going to happen, you know, when and if Obama gets elected? Uh, when these types of people are empowered and put in positions, uh, high up positions of authority in the bureaucracy, the heads of agencies that the president gets to uh, automatically declare, and more more liberal judges of this kind, uh, it's going to make the face of this nation uh, into, into a tragedy. I don't even want to witness. I don't want to see how, how low we can sink. You know, what really makes me afraid is the thought that they're going to get rid of our nuclear missiles and make us completely naked to people like the Red Chinese and the Russians. You know, if if if, if people like this were able to disassemble our uh, defense system, we would be completely helpless in this country. And you watch, the day after this country does not have a working nuclear missile, you watch how long we last as a country. It would not be long. Yeah, and there's there's no question. A lot of these people, they have no sense of dealing in, in a world in conflict and adversity. They live under the secure umbrella that was procured by our strength of industry and military. Yet, ironically, the industry and the military are the two big enemies of our liberals. They couldn't sound more like communists if they were Soviets talking. Yeah, and, and you know what's funny is just like they're against the military that defends their existence, they're against all the corporations that provide all the things that they use that they buy at the store. Sure, and their big Toyota SUVs mm. and their, their their fancy cars. and their, You know, they like big houses, too. And I'm sure they heat their houses. Absolutely. Yeah, except, uh, you know, they, they buy organic food and they're better than the rest of us. <laughs> well, thank you, Keith, for being with us outside the box. Thank you for having me, Jeff. All right. We'll be back after these messages. Arcata Police Department, this is Willie. May I help you? We saw an article in the North Coast Journal that the uh, Arcata Police were going to be uh, checking people going to the concert of the Lipizzaner Stallions. Is that true? Uh, yeah, that's uh, indeed incorrect. And you won't be doing that? You won't be stopping people? And uh, No, sir. Is that report an error? Did the city council vote to do this sort of thing? It or? was an error. The North Coast Journal got that wrong, but uh, I don't know anything about what the city council did. I see. Well, thank you very much. We contacted the Arcata PD to find out about the story on the Lipizzaner Stallions, and it turns out the story is a hoax. But it's a hoax that's right on, because uh, that kind of thing, restricting people from going to an event because it's perceived as warlike, would be exactly what the commie hippie greens that run the Arcata City Council would do. So, right on, on the local media, on spoofing the Arcata City Council. You know, a lot of times in my column, when I write about different issues, people will write me and say, you just think America's good and everybody else is evil, or America's good and Russia's evil or China's evil. Well, of course, we all know everything's not so simple. America's an imperfect country, and we're all imperfect people in it. But there are some basic issues. We've been building a civilization for the last thousand years, 
It's been called Christian civilization. It's been called European, American civilization. But we've been building it ourselves and our ancestors. And we've developed freedom, free institutions. We've developed technology, advanced ways of doing things. Our knowledge has been advancing. But one thing has happened in the last century, one thing that everybody needs to be aware of and that this program is trying to focus on, and it's the rise of totalitarianism, especially totalitarianism from the left, if that means anything. That is ideology. People who think they have the answers, who think that the way that we've been developing the last a thousand years is wrong, that everything based on the trial and error of the last thousand years has been wrong, and that they know that if we level everything out and we start all over again with their ideas, we'll end up with the ideal society. I don't believe that. I don't think that's going to work. And I'm with Edmund Burke in saying that the revolution, the chopping off all the heads and leveling all the institutions and making everybody equal is not going to make anything work at all. It's only going to allow the rise of tyranny. And this is the problem that we face today. It isn't just the problem of good versus evil. It's a problem of a civilization that's been building for a thousand years, confronting the fanatics who want an anti-civilization. I use that very advisedly. What would an anti-civilization look like? The Soviet Union. Red China. It's a civilization that's built around principles of destroying a civilization out of envy, out of malice, out of its own failure. Uh, Saddam Hussein made a statement. It was about Saddam's bomb makers. And he, he turned to the, one of the makers of his atomic bomb. He was trying to make one. He said, just give me the bomb and I'll avenge the centuries of wrong. What do you think Stalin was saying to his bomb maker? What do you think Mao Zedong was saying when they were making the atomic bomb for Red China in the 1960s? And why do these people want the atomic bomb? They're more interested in that in these countries like Iran, like China, like Russia, than they are for a good life for their people. The trade we're having with China is not so that the Chinese people can live better. The trade with it is so that the People's Republic of China can accumulate the resources it needs to build a first-class army, navy, and strategic rocket force. That's why they're doing it. And just as civilization seeks to eliminate, you know, things that threaten it, like pirates and like robbers, get control of crime, stop military aggression, the anti-civilization proclaims that the ultimately civilized values are its values and that anything it does to collapse civilization is justified and any crime and any atrocity it commits is justified. I mean, this explains Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. It explains the whole group and we're not done with them yet. And we are in danger. I want to thank you for being with us tonight. Join me next week at this time. Until then... Take care and be well. America, oh.